eyes to heaven and said, I pray not only for my disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, so that they may all be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me, and I have given them the glory that you gave me so that they may be one as we are one. I in them, you in me, that they may be brought to perfection as one, that the world may know that you sent me, and that you love them even as you loved me. Father, they are your gift to me. I wish that where I am they also may be with me that they may see the glory that you gave me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Righteous Father, the world also does not know you, but I know you, and they know that you sent me. I have made known to them your name, and I will make it known that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. The Gospel of the Lord. Have a seat. So I usually say this like when I'm filling in at a Sunday Mass or something. But every time you get a new priest and a new place, it's a bit like learning a new dance partner. That's especially appropriate for weddings when we're all finding new steps. It also strikes me as um, purely providential that the second reading went the way that it did because now I can rightly say, how many priests does it take to get one of these married? Friends, I'm Father P.J. McManus. I'm the parish priest at Christ the King in Des Moines, where Jordan and Annie attend Mass regularly. And uh, I've been privileged to come close to the priest family over these last several years and enjoy getting to know binders and company last night. I um, am from Des Moines, though I was gone for many, many years. And the Des Moines crew has already heard this. But I have to kind of clue the Cedar Rapids part of the family in, or none of the rest of what I have to say will make much sense. So apologies for the repetition, and hold on to your seats. It's going to be fun. My grandparents were married in 1928 at the cathedral in downtown Des Moines on a Thursday morning on the way to work. 
Those in attendance were my grandmother, my grandfather, Monsignor, the housekeeper, and the gardener. They were married for 68 years. The reason they got married so irregularly was because when they married, Grandma was still a Protestant. She converted eventually. But when they got married, Grandma was still a Protestant, and in those days, mixed marriages couldn't be in the church proper. They had to be in the rectory. And it was complicated by the fact that he was Irish, she was English, he was Catholic, she was Protestant, and most importantly, she worked a job that they didn't allow her to be married at. So Monsignor got real creative where he published the wedding announcement, and her bosses didn't find out. And so the plan was to get married Thursday morning, they'd both go into work, and then she'd be off for three whole days. Didn't work. She got called in, had to work a double, and so poor Grandpa Mac found himself the night of his wedding, all alone in a cold, empty bed. He woke up the next morning realizing he dodged a bullet because the bed that he had at the rooming house where he rented the space wasn't big enough for two people. So he got up the next morning and walked downtown to a furniture store that's not there anymore and he bought for himself and his bride a bed. Not a fancy bed, not an expensive bed, he couldn't afford it, but he bought a bed. It would be like, I don't know, the coals of beds today. Just normal and affordable, but it was handmade in the sense that in 1928 pretty much everything was handmade. Having bought it, he realized he now had another problem. He had to get a home, and he didn't have a car, and he couldn't pay one of the trucks, so he had to take the bed apart piece by piece, tie it all together, and throw it over his shoulder, carry it on his own back all the way uptown to where they live. I want you to look around this beautiful old church right now and note the stations of the cross that are hanging on the walls of the nave. There's a reason the stations sit in the nave, the part of the church where the people sit, as opposed to the sanctuary. It's not because the priests are better than the people. Priests are one of the people, just have special things to do. But the reason the stations are out there is out there in the world where we live and sweat and suffer in our daily lives, we experience the Lord's cross. But when we cross that threshold into the sanctuary, this, this is holy ground. I will go to the altar of God, even to the God who gives joy to my youth. This is the place where holy things happen. There's a veil here, invisible, that separates heaven from earth. And when these two cross that step, they're going to step into heaven to do the most important thing they've ever done. Poor grandpa was like the Lord bearing his cross up Calvary. He just didn't know it yet. Like Isaac bearing the wood of the sacrifice, he then had to, had to build the altar on which he and grandma would offer the sacrifice of their lives every day for the next 68 years. Three children were born on that bed. Presumably conceived too, though we're not going to press that one. 
One of them died on that bed and was waked there. 35 years or so of late nights, crying babies, sick kids, grumpy spouses, all on that bed. For a time, they even got displaced and their parents, his parents, had to have the bed when they got old. Then, when my grandparents got older, my dad married and that bed became their wedding gift to him. It was the bed on which my parents slept for my entire childhood till my grandparents moved back in with us. They died on that bed, both of them. Later, my mother too. It was gifted eventually to my sister, and now it waits in the rectory till I have a niece or a nephew old enough to use it. A hundred years of life and death, of joy and of sorrow, of lovemaking and reconciliation right there on that bed. And I tell this story, not quite every wedding, but most of them, because this is so potent a symbol for me, a kind of natural sacrament. And so my question for these two, but for all of you that are married here today, is simply this. What you going to make your bed? What's going to be the inheritance you pass on to your kids, not in terms of furniture, which nobody will remember a hundred years from now, but a hundred years from now, you have a grandson who's a priest, but this kind of priest, not just the last name, and, and he's trying to teach people what it means to be married, not from what he learned in a book at seminary, though the books are important, boys, so don't skip on homework, but what he could only learn from you, from his own family. And it's the only hope he has, really, of ever being a halfway decent priest. Because the same skills necessary to be a good spouse are what are required of us in our care for you. The church insists on the word sacrament for matrimony because in the whole of the New Testament, the word sacrament appears only once. It's in that passage from the Ephesians that nobody likes to read anymore. Wives, be subject to your husbands. Husbands, all the best, right? But you get to the end, and after he's done dancing with husbands and wives and how they should behave, he says this, that is marriage, is a magnum mysterium, a great mystery, the mystery of Christ and of his church. And that word mystery, it's a compound in Greek. The M-Y is mu. It's where we get our word mute from. And the steres is like an event or a happening. So a sacrament, a mystery, is not a detective story to be solved, a puzzle to be examined. It's a mystery before which we fall silent. Like the glance of the one whom we love more than life itself. And the reason 
that the Latins chose to translate it as sacrament was because sacraments, sacramentums, were oaths that Roman soldiers would swear to their superior officers. They'd lay their hands in the superior's hands just the way we do when we get ordained today, and they'd swear an oath that basically said if they deserted the army, they gave permission to be killed. Desertion was hugely common in the ancient world, and so this was seen as so brave, so courageous a move, that even prisoners would fall silent at the courage of their captors. Officers at the bravery of their soldiers. So make no mistake, what you do today, if you do it honest, is a brave thing. It takes courage. Not just in the sort of culture war sense that it takes courage to get married in a traditional way when that doesn't happen anymore and we're told it's bad. That's all true. But it was brave to get married before that too. It takes courage to get married because it takes courage to trust God sufficiently that he would actually make somebody willing to put up with you. Both of you. It takes courage to trust God sufficiently that he'd, he'd designate someone just for the sake of sanctifying you, of readying you for heaven. And it takes more courage, not less, as the days and years roll by, to trust that the one that has been given me to complete me in the best sense, to sanctify me, to perfect me, actually has my back really means my best, has no greater aim in life than to see me become a saint. That is a mystery worth falling silent over. That's a cross worth bearing up every hill. A sacrifice worth offering on every altar. The Lord says today, right, that we're to be sanctified and perfected in him so that they, that is the world, might know his oneness with the Father. The reason marriage is a sacrament, the reason marriage was a kind of sacrament even before the Lord instituted them the way we recognize now, is simply this. There is no greater sign of God's love for us than you. Today, your parents, and your grandma, siblings, and friends, we're proud of you. I'm proud of you because you're brave. And because you're willing. And because I know that as you say these most important words, you will give your life away and receive everything in return. <laughs>